Book 2, Chapter 3, Sections 1 through 5 of Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wild Shimmering Path. Bread by Charles G. Norris. Book 2, Chapter 3, Sections 1 through 5. June sunshine streamed in through the open windows in an avalanche of golden light and lay in bright parallelograms on the floor. Jeanette was making the bed. She was in the gayest of spirits and sang as she punched the pillows to rid them of lumpiness and smoothed them flat. She spread the brilliant cretone cover with its gaudy design of pheasants over the bed, turned it neatly back two feet from the headboard, laid the pillows in place, and folded the cretone over them tucking it in gently at the top. The bed cover was not as long as it should have been, and it required nice adjustments to make it lap over the pillows. It was the Wanamaker man's fault, Jeanette always thought, when she reached this point in her morning's housework. She had told him with the utmost pains how she wished the cretone to go, and it was his mistake that it was not long enough. Short as it was, it could be made to reach by allowing only a scant inch or two at the bottom. She had put the same material at the windows in narrow strips of outside curtaining, and there was a gathered valance across the top. The bedroom was sweet, charming, and beautifully appointed like the rest of her domain. Her mother and Alice had raved about everything. Martin liked it too, though his wife wished he could find the same amount of pleasure in their little home that she did. Martin was like most men. He did not notice things, never commented upon her ideas and clever arrangements. To her, the apartment was perfection. It was situated in a building that had just been erected in the West 80s, halfway between Broadway and the Drive. It had five rooms, and the rent was $50 a month, more perhaps than they ought to be paying, but Martin had argued that $10 one way or another did not make any particular difference, and if it suited Jeanette, he was for signing the lease. So he had put his name to the formidable-looking legal document, and the young Devlins had agreed to pay the big rent, and to live there for a year. They could remain in it for life, Jeanette declared, as far as she was concerned. She could not imagine ever wanting a more beautiful or a more satisfactory home. The apartment contained all the latest improvements, electric lights, steam heat, a house telephone. The woodwork was chastely white throughout, the electrolier in the dining room a plain dull brass, the fixtures in all the rooms were of the same lusterless metal, between dining and living rooms were glass doors, the panes set in squares. The bathroom floor was solid marquetry of small octagonal tiles embedded in cement, and glossy tiling rose about the walls to the height of the shoulder. The room glistened with shining nickel and flawless porcelain. The bathtub was sumptuous and had a shower arrangement with a rubber sheeting on rings to envelop the bather. Martin had grinned when his eye took in these details. He swore in his enthusiasm, by God, he certainly would enjoy a bathroom like that. It certainly would be great. But Jeanette was more intrigued with the kitchen. Here were white-painted cupboards, fragrantly smelling of new wood, and a marvelous pantry full of neat contrivances, drawers, bins, and lockers. In one of them, Jeanette discovered a little sawdust and a few carpenter's shavings. They spoke eloquently of the newness and cleanliness of everything. There was a shining gas stove, too, with a roomy oven that had an enameled door and a bright nickel knob to it. There was even a gas heater connected with the boiler. All one had to do was to touch a match to the burner, the renting agent explained, and presto! 
The flame came up, heated the coil of copper pipe, and in a moment, oh yes, indeed, much less than a minute, there was the hot water. It had seemed so miraculous to Jeanette that she had not believed it would work, but it did, perfectly. No fault was to be found with anything connected with the wonderful establishment. There had been plenty of money with which to furnish it, just as Jeanette pleased. The publishing company had presented her with a check for $250 as a wedding gift in appreciation for her faithful services, and Mr. Corey had supplemented this with one of his own for a like amount. "'No, no, don't thank me, please, Miss Sturgis,' he had said, almost impatiently, as he handed it to her. "'I feel so badly about your going, and I can never pay you for all you've done for me. This is a poor evidence of my gratitude and esteem. I wish I might make it thousands instead of hundreds. In addition, he had sent her on the day she was married a tall silver flower vase that must have cost, Jeanette and Martin decided, almost as much as the amount of his check. Her mother had borrowed five hundred upon the old paid-up policy, asserting that she had done so for Alice and the older daughter was entitled to a like amount upon getting married. And besides all this, Martin had turned over to his wife on the day the lease had been signed, several hundreds more. It appeared that a year before, about the very time he had met Jeanette, his mother died. She had lived in Watertown, New York, where Martin was born, and where she had an interest in a small grocery business. Martin's father, dead for sixteen years, had been a grocer and had run a back room in connection with his store, where Milwaukee beer had been dispensed but never hard liquor. Jeanette did not give her mother these facts when she learned them. It was nobody's business, she contended. Everybody when he came to America was a pioneer and began in a humble way. Paul Devlin's old partner, Con Donovan, who had come over from Balahadrine with him in 73, had carried on the business after his demise, and there had been money enough to send Martin to school and to support the boy and Paul's widow. But when his mother had followed his father to the grave, Martin had no longer any interest in groceries, and he gladly accepted the $3,000 Con Donovan offered him for his inherited share of the business. It hadn't been enough to do anything with, Martin explained to his wife, so he had just blown it. It accounted for the theater tickets, the presents, the entertainments with which he had backed his wooing. There was nearly a thousand dollars left after the honeymoon to Atlantic City, and Martin had gone to his bank and transferred the whole account to his wife's name upon their return, telling her to go ahead and furnish the new home in any way she fancied. Jeanette had nearly seventeen hundred dollars in the bank when she began. She had no thought of spending so much but it melted away in the most surprising fashion. Martin, in a way, was responsible for this. Whenever she consulted him, he was always in favor of the more expensive course. She would have been quite satisfied with a $220 dining room set, but he decided in favor of the one that cost 350 When she said she would be contented with the simple white-painted wooden bed, he had chosen a brass one and ordered the box-spring mattress that had cost nearly $100 more. He had also persuaded her against her judgment in the matter of the big Davenport and the upholstered chairs that went with it for the living room. Then there had been the matter of the two oil paintings in ornate gold frames upon which they had chanced in Macy's while on a shopping tour. Jeanette had grave doubts about the oils. She did not know whether they were good or bad. Her misgivings in regard to them may have sprung from the fact that they hung in Macy's art gallery, but there could be no questioning the handsomeness and impressiveness of the gold frames. "'Why, sure, let's have them,' Martin said, eyeing them judiciously as he and his wife stood together considering the purchase. "'They look like a million dollars, and anything I hate are bare walls. 
You want to have the place looking, oh, you know, artistic and classy. The autumn colouring in this one is most lifelike, the eager young salesman ventured. It seems to me they both have a great deal of depth and quality, don't you think? And while, of course, the size has nothing to do with the art, still I really think you ought to take into consideration the fact that this canvas is 36 by 27, and the other one is nearly as large. Now, for 25 and 30 dollars... Sure, let's have them, Martin decided in his lordly, arbitrary way. And if I find out they're no good he added to the beaming salesman. I'll come back here and slap Mrs. Macy on the wrist. This was most appreciated, and the very next day, in much excelsior and paper wrappings, the two heavily framed paintings arrived and now hung facing one another in the front room. Jeanette used to study them, finger on lip, wondering if they had merit or were nothing but daubs. They appeared all right. There was nothing to criticize about them as far as she could see but she knew they would never mean anything to her as long as she remembered they had been bought at Macy's. Her mother warmly shared her husband's enthusiasm. Why, dearie, they look perfectly beautiful, she told her daughter, and they give your home such an air of distinction. I wouldn't worry my head about where they came from as long as they give you pleasure. But if Jeanette had misgivings about the pictures, she had no doubts about anything else her perfect little home contained. It was complete as far as she could make it, from the service of plated flat silver her old associates at the office had clubbed together and given her, to the carpet sweeper that had a little closet of its own to stand in, along with the extra leaves of the dining room table. There were towels, sheets, table linen, chairs, pictures, and rugs. She had indulged her fancy somewhat in curtaining, had decided on plain net at the windows with narrow strips of some brightly colored material on either side. She had picked out a salmon-tinted, satin-finished drapery at Wanamaker's for the living room and gay cretonne for her bedroom, and she had had these curtains made at the store. I'd be forever doing the work, she had said in justifying this extravagance to Martin, and we want to get settled sometime. Sure, have them made, he agreed genially. The dining room had puzzled Jeanette for a long time, but after the dark blue carpet had been selected and made into a rug to fit the room, she had found a blue madras that just matched its tone. It cost a great deal more than she felt she ought to pay, but she had bought the twelve yards she needed, nevertheless, and had determined she could save something by cutting and hemming the curtains herself. She could take them out to Alice's and use her sewing machine." It was all finished now, Jeanette reflected, pushing the big brass bed into place against the wall. They had been a little reckless, perhaps, but now they were ready to settle down, begin to live quietly, and to save. They owed about two hundred dollars at Wanamaker's, but would soon manage to pay that off. She went on calculating expenses as she ran the carpet sweeper about the room. Martin liked a good deal of meat, so she doubted if she could manage the table on less than twelve or maybe thirteen dollars a week. That would take half of what he gave her on Saturdays. She needed so much for this, so much for that, and she would have to get herself some kind of a silk dress for the hot weather. Still, she thought she could save five or six dollars a week, and Martin ought to be able to do the same. They would have the Wanamaker bill paid in a few months. As she went on running the sweeper under the bed and pushing it gingerly into corners so as not to mar the paint of the baseboards, she reflected that, as a matter of fact, Martin had really no right to expect her to pay anything out of her weekly money on what they owed Wanamaker. 
Every cent of that bill had been for house furnishings, and it had been clearly understood between them that her money was for the table and herself. Still, it had been she who had wanted the curtains. She ought to help pay for them. When the bathroom was cleaned, Martin's bath towel spread along the rim of the tub to dry, his dirty shirt and collar put into the laundry basket, his shoes set neatly on the floor of the closet, the ash receiver in the living room emptied and the cushions on the Davenport straightened. Jeanette settled herself in a rocking chair at the window, her basket of sewing in her lap. She hated sewing. The basket was entangled confusion, but it was always that way. Spools and yarn, papers of needles, pins, buttons, threads, tape, and scraps of material were all mixed up together in a fine snarl. She found a certain degree of satisfaction in its confusion. Today she had a run in one of her silk stockings to draw together, and a button to sew on Martin's coat. She caught the coat up first, and as she held it in her hands, the song that she had been humming all morning died upon her lips. She looked at the garment with softening eyes, then she raised its rough texture to her cheek and kissed it. It smelled of its owner, a smell that was fragrance to her, an odor scented faintly with cigars, but even more redolent of the man himself. It was strong, it was masculine, it was Martin. There was no smell like it in the world, or one half so sweet. She mused as she searched for a black silk thread, needle, and thimble. When Alice had extolled to her the wonderful happiness of marriage, how right she had been. Jeanette pitied all unmarried women now. There was a Freemasonry among wives, and all spinsters, old and young, were debarred from the mystic circle. She wondered what made the difference. Unmarried women were all buds that had never opened to the full beauty of the mature flower. They were the uninitiated, and so long as they remained so, would never attain their full powers. Miss Holland, now, was a fine woman, efficient, capable, executive, but how much more able and efficient and remarkable if she had married. She might be divorced, she might be a widow. That did not make a difference. It seemed to Jeanette in the full bloom of her own wifehood. It was marrying that counted. It was that Mrs. before a woman's name that gave her standing, poise, position in the world, broadened her sympathies, increased her capabilities. She thought her own marriage perfection. She considered herself the happiest, most fortunate of wives. Her pretty home enchanted her, and Martin was the most satisfactory of adoring husbands. He had his faults, she presumed, and she no doubt had hers, but there were never woman and man so happy together, so ideally congenial. She thought of her honeymoon, the few days at Atlantic City. She had never learned to swim, but Martin was an expert. He had looked stunning in his bathing suit, straight, clean-limbed with his big chest and shoulders and his slim waist, the figure of an athlete, as she indeed discovered him to be when he struck out into the sea with the freedom of a seal, flinging the water from his black mop of hair with a quick head toss now and then, his arms working like flails. They had plunged through the breakers together, and Martin had held her high up as the curling water crashed down upon them. It had been cold but exhilarating, and a group had gathered on the boardwalk and down on the beach to watch the two battling with the waves. Then there had been the quiet rolling up and down the boardwalk in the big chair while the tide of Easter visitors sauntered past them in all their gay clothing. The weather had been warm, the sunshine glorious. She thought of their room at the hotel and the intimate times of dressing and undressing in each other's presence. It had been emotional, exciting, a little frightening, but there had been the discovery of perfect comradeship, and all the other phases of marriage, pleasant and unpleasant, had been forgotten. Companionship, wholehearted, unreserved, constant. That was the outstanding feature of marriage for Jeanette. 
Her mind carried her on to contemplate the future and what it held in store for them. Her marriage with Martin must be a success. There must be no quarreling, no disagreements, no bickerings. There must never, never be any talk of divorce between them. Ah, how she hated the word divorce now. She had never given the subject any particular consideration heretofore. It was merely an accepted proceeding by which unhappily married people won back their freedom. But how differently she felt about it today. She would die rather than ever consent to a divorce from Martin. She'd forgive him anything. He was a little spoiled, perhaps. He liked to have his own way, and he hated anything unpleasant. It must be her duty to humor and educate him. She must give a little, exact a little. A successful marriage, she believed, depended upon that. A husband and wife must become adjusted to one another. If necessary, she resolved, she would give more than she received. Oh yes, she would give and give and give. Martin had only one serious fault, and that was he too much liked having a good time. It seemed to her he was never satisfied with anything less than an epicure's dinner. He must have the best all the time. He loved cocktails and wine and good cigars, a snappy show, a little bite of something afterwards, a gay place to dine, lively music, lights, color. He wanted to go places where there was something doing, and he didn't want to go places where there was nothing doing. These were familiar expressions on his lips. His wife told herself she liked a good time, too. She loved the theater and to dress well, and she liked a gay restaurant, good food, and music, but she didn't want them all the time. She wasn't as dependent upon them as Martin was. A husband and wife, she considered, should not indulge in too much of that kind of frivolous living, and no later than last evening she had had a talk with Martin about it. Oh, sure, my dear. You're dead right, he had assured her. I know, we must settle down and stay at home nights, but we're still having our honeymoon, and I can't get used to the idea that you're my wife. It just seems to me we ought to celebrate all the time. Martin was always so reasonable, thought Jeanette, recalling his words. She decided she would have a specially nice dinner for him that night to show him how much she appreciated his sweetness. She paused a moment over the decision, as she recalled that something vague had been said to her mother about coming to dine with them. She knew Martin would prefer to be alone, and she wanted to encourage the idea of his spending the evening quietly with her. She would go to see her mother and explain matters. She would have lunch with her. At Kratzmer's, she would stop and get some salad, and she'd buy some crumpets at Henry's and take them along with her. Abruptly, she determined to let the run in her stocking wait. She wound the silk several times about the button on Martin's coat, pushed the needle through the fabric twice, and snapped the thread close to the cloth with an incisive bite of her teeth. Then she carried the work to her room, hanging Martin's coat on a hanger in the closet. As she proceeded to dress carefully, she considered each detail of her costume. Her wardrobe was delightfully complete. She had plenty of clothes, a suitable garment for any demand. While an office worker, she had always dressed with certain soberness, an eye to business decorum. But as a married woman, a young matron who lived at the Dexter Court apartments, she felt she could allow herself more latitude. She ran her eye appraisingly over the file of dresses that hung neatly in her closet. Their number gratified her. She was even satisfied with her hats. Now she lifted down her blue broadcloth tailor suit, covered handsomely with braid, and selected a soft white silk shirtwaist that had a v-neck and a pleated ruffled collar. She drew on fine brown silk stockings and fitted her feet into tan oxfords. Her ankles were trim and shapely. She never had appeared so smartly dressed. 
Her appearance delighted her, but she was in doubt about the hat for the day and finally selected the Lichtenberg model, a silvered straw with a flaring brim trimming in gray velvet and a curling gray cock's feather. As she pulled her hands into tan gloves and gave a final glance at herself in the long mirror of the bathroom door, she decided that was the costume she would wear when she went to the offices of the Chandler B. Corey Company to pay her old friends a visit. Mrs. Sturgis had declared after Jeanette's marriage she preferred to remain in the old apartment where she had been comfortable for so many years. To be sure, the rent was $30 a month, but she said she could manage that. She had her music lessons, four or five hours a day, and there were other pupils to be had if she needed the income, but it did not appear necessary. Elsa Newman's cousin, Cora Newman, who had been studying with Bellini for two years, had developed a truly remarkable mezzo, and she preferred Mrs. Sturgis to any other accompanist. The very weekend Jeanette was married, Cora Newman had given her first public recital, and Mrs. Sturgis had been at the piano. She had had a very beautiful black dress made for the occasion, and the affair had been a great success. The critics had praised Miss Newman's voice, and the Tribune had given a special line to the player. The singer was sympathetically accompanied at the piano by Mrs. Henrietta Spalding Sturgis. Now both Elsa and Cora wanted her whenever either of them sang, and there were plans ahead for a concert tour to Quebec and Montreal. If that turned out successfully, they were talking of an upstate trip in the fall through Rochester, Syracuse, as far as Buffalo. You know what I eat, loveys, Miss Sturgis had explained to her daughters when keeping the apartment was being discussed among them. It's microscopic, and it won't cost me five a week. I can always get whatever I need at Kratzmer's, and a little tea and toast is often all I want. But that's just it, Jeanette had expostulated. You don't eat enough to keep a bird alive. Anyhow, if you live by yourself, you won't eat that. Mrs. Sturgis had assured them she would take good care of herself. You can't imagine me happy in a boarding house, she had challenged, and I wouldn't be able to have a piano there or give lessons. There had been no answer to this. Boarding in one place and renting a studio in another would be even more expensive than keeping the apartment. Today, Jeanette heard the familiar finger exercises as she neared the top of the long stair flight of her old home. And as she noiselessly opened the back door kitchenward, her mother's voice from the studio, one and two and three and four, and she took off her hat and gloves, laid them on her mother's bed, and went to peek in the cupboard. There was a piece of bakery pie and a few eggs. She decided to make an omelette, and with the toasted crumpets and tea, a little jar of marmalade, and the potato salad she had brought with her, she and her mother would lunch royally. It was ten minutes to twelve. The lesson would soon be over. They lingered over their repast until nearly two. Mrs. Sturgis had lessons from four to six, the after-school hours, but until then she was free. She had had half a notion, she confessed, of going down to Union Square that afternoon to look at some new piano pieces for beginners at Shermer's. Jeanette told her she would go with her. She wanted to get an alligator pair for Martin's dinner, but neither of them appeared inclined to terminate the little luncheon at the kitchen table. They had finished the crumpets, but there was still marmalade left, and Mrs. Sturgis produced some pieces of cold leftover toast with which to finish it. She was full of news and her affairs. In the first place, Alice and Roy were going to Freeport on Long Island for the summer. They had found a very nice place where they could board for $18 a week. Oh yes, both of them and the baby too. 
Roy was going to commute every day, and the Bronx flat was to be closed. Just turn the key in the door and leave it until they were ready to come back. Then there was great talk about the concert tour. Bellini, who had sailed only the day before yesterday for Italy, had thought Miss Elsa and Miss Cora had better study another winter before attempting it, but a most encouraging letter had been received from Montreal, and both the girls were eager to try the experiment. They were in doubt as to whether they should take a violinist with them or not. Of course, a violinist would be a drawing card, but they would have his salary and all his expenses to pay, which would cut down the profits, if there were any. Jeanette's mother did not think it was in the least necessary, but if they didn't take one, Miss Elsa had said Mrs. Sturgis had better be prepared to do some solo numbers, and that meant she'd have to do some real hard practicing as she hadn't done anything like that for years. She did not know whether to work up the Mendelssohn Capricioso or the Chopin Fantasie Impromptu. What did Jeanette think? Of course, there was that meditation, but as her mother rambled on, Jeanette's mind wandered. Her thoughts were with Martin. She wondered what he was doing at that moment, with whom he lunched, how she could entertain him in the evenings and keep him from wanting to go out. He must have some friends whom she could invite to dinner. There was Beatrice Alexander, of course, and she had heard him speak pleasantly of Herbert Gibbs, the younger of the two Gibbs brothers. He was married, she remembered, his wife had a baby, and they lived somewhere down on Long Island. She herself would have liked to have asked Miss Holland, but she was hardly the type that would interest Martin. There was Tommy Livingston, but Tommy was really too young. Her mind rested on Sandy McGregor. He was a widower. His wife had been dead for over a year. She knew he would love to come to them, and Martin was sure to like him. The thought exalted her. Sandy and Beatrice Alexander would make an excellent combination. She accompanied her mother downtown in gay spirits, full of determination to put this plan immediately into effect. The dinner party, when it took place, was not altogether a success. Still, it was far from being a failure. Sandy unquestionably had a good time, for he and Martin took a great liking to each other. Beatrice had proven the unfortunate element. She had always been diffident, and the eyeglasses hopelessly disfigured her. Martin liked her because he knew her so well. One had to know Beatrice to appreciate her. But Sandy had been merely polite and amiable. He enjoyed Martin and Martin's cocktails, however. They had one or two before dinner, and each time they raised their glasses, Sandy said, Saloon! which had amused Martin vastly. The dinner itself was delicious. Even Jeanette felt satisfied. The baked onions stuffed with minced ham, Alice had suggested that and shown her how to do them, had been enthusiastically praised. The chicken had been tender, and the iced pudding ordered at Henry's could not have been more delicious. After dinner, they played auction bridge. Martin loved cards in any form, and he undertook to teach Jeanette. Sandy was an old hand at the game, but Beatrice Alexander was but a timid player, after three or four rubbers, the men abandoned the cards, which Jeanette could see, bored them with such partners, and began matching quarters, and Martin had won eighteen dollars. The last match had been for double or nothing, and Jeanette was hardly able to stifle the quick breath of relief that came to her lips when Martin won. She had always known Sandy to be liberal-handed, and he paid his losses good-humoredly, telling Jeanette in a way that made her believe he meant what he said, that he had had a wonderful evening, and would telephone shortly to ask the Devlins to dinner with him. He generously offered to take Beatrice Alexander home, and Jeanette returned from the elevator, where she and Martin had bidden good night to their departing guests, to the disorder and smoky atmosphere of their little home with the feeling that it had all been worthwhile. My lord, 
Martin said that night as he lay in bed, waiting for her to wind the clock, open the window, snap out the lights, and join him. I wish you had a girl out there in the kitchen to help you with all that mess. Damned if I like the idea of my wife doing all those dirty dishes and having to clean up everything tomorrow. It will take you all day. Well, Jeanette answered, I'll hate it tomorrow myself, but I really don't mind very much. I love the idea of entertaining our friends, but we can't have a girl yet. I've got to do my own work for a while at any rate. You see, Martin, I was figuring it out. She had crawled in beside him, and at once his arms were about her, and she had nestled close to him, her head on his hard shoulder. "'Your friend Sandy's a corker,' he said, kissing her hair and ignoring her plan of figures and economy. "'I like that guy fine. He can have all that eighteen dollars I won from him.' "'Oh, Martin. Sure, of course. I'll put it in the till.' The till was a small round canister intended for tea, but converted into a savings bank. "'You'll do nothing of the kind,' Martin told her. "'You blow it in on yourself or for something nice for the house.' But Mart, she remonstrated, I want to pay off that Wanamaker's bill. We can't have a girl in the kitchen until we don't owe a cent. Ah, don't worry so, Jan. You're always scared we're going to go bust or something. I'll get a raise as soon as summer's over. Gibbs is bound to come through, cause he knows I'll quit if he don't. I bring in a lot of fine business to that outfit, and all my customers are dandy friends of mine. I'll not be working for him at fifty per much longer. Mart, Jeanette said suddenly, wouldn't it be a good plan to have Herbert Gibbs and his wife to dinner some night and show them how nice we are and how nice we live and what a good dinner we can give them? You know, it might help. He tells his brother everything, Beatrice says. Great, say that's a bully idea, Martin was at once enthusiastic. Herb would like it fine and so would Mrs. Herb. I'll get some good old burgundy and pour it into him and feed him some Corona Coronas and he'll just expand like a night bloom in Sirius. And on this happy plan, still with an arm about her, her head pillowed on his shoulder, they drifted off to sleep. End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Sections One through Five.